Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. I'm going to pray from uh, by using a, p- a passage in Colossians 1 in the growth groups this term one of the questions we're going to be thinking about hopefully the whole term is how does this passage help us pray god's word is such a gift to us not just so that we can hear from god but to shape our prayers and so i'm going to kind of model that i guess now by colossians chapter one Uh, so you can look at that after if you'd like to but let's pray together dear heavenly father thank you so much that we can gather together this morning again Thank you for the gift that it is to gather and be reminded of all that you are and all that you've done. And thank you for Jesus. Jesus, you are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Anything we ever want to know about you, God, we can see by looking to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that everything was created by you. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through you and for you. Jesus, you are before all things. And by you, all things hold together. You are also the head of the body, the church. Jesus, as we gather together this morning, we remember that you are the one we are gathering for. You are the head of us. You are the one that we exist for, the one that gets all of the glory. You are the beginning the firstborn from among the dead, you, Jesus, showed us resurrection and that there is a hope beyond death, that you might have the first place in everything. God, you were pleased to have all of your fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus reconciling everything to yourself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God, we thank you for this because once we were alienated and hostile in our minds, expressed in our evil actions, but now you have reconciled us to you by his physical body through his death to present us holy, faultless, and blameless before you. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and not shifted away from anything holding on to the gospel that we've heard, the good news about Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read from this passage now uh, that we're going to have. Ross is going to preach to us in a moment as we continue in our series. And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7, verse 36, right through to the end of the chapter. This is what God's Word says. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. 
One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to warn the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet her feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Ben, for reading that out. We are on a bit of a journey this term, working through uh, some of the meals through the Gospel of Luke. I love them because it kind of, the way the story is told, the way Luke writes it, it invites us to the dinner table. It invites us a part of the conversation that we're seeing and hearing everything that's going on. And it challenges us, what would I do if I was there? What's this got to do with me? And that's what we're investigating this morning. So I might pray that God would... Uh, bring us to that table, into that discussion, that he might speak to us. Please pray with me. Dear Father God, just thank you. Thank you for these stories that are recorded for us. Thank you that Jesus was able to meet so many people and so many people like us that we can relate to and that we can know. I do pray that as we meet here this morning that you would speak to us. Lead us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some people, if you've noticed live amazing, passionate lives with real purpose. Uh, I don't know whether you saw the Australians of the Year and their stories, but I want to introduce you to one lady, Shana Wan. Shana Wan. Um, she leads uh, a charity or an organisation or what she called, prefers to be called a movement called Sober in the Country, that it's okay to say no. That she goes around uh, talking to people and sharing about how you don't need alcohol to be social, to be connected with other people. And she wanted to lead, a, uh, sorry, she didn't want to ever be the person to lead a movement. It wasn't her lifetime goal, like, I want to be the CEO of an organisation. I want to travel around Australia. I want to be Australian of the Year. None of those were her goals. In fact, she was led to this out of a response to different circumstances, which got to make makes you ask. She estimates she has spent 20,000 hours on this project, on creating this movement. That's a lot. I haven't worked out how many hours a week over years. But she says if somebody wants to talk to her, whether there's a few people in a paddock or go to a conference, she will travel anywhere in Australia to share, to challenge people about their drinking habits, which is very countercultural. But she's convicted. She's passionate. And she throws her life into it. What would make somebody do that? To give up so much of yourself? Well, it's because something happened in her life. See, she would be one of the people, if somebody come to her town, say, hey, I want to talk to you about it's okay to say no. She'd go, no thanks, because she enjoyed a drink. 
And she didn't consider herself an alcoholic at all. Uh, she's happy to have one or two a night, and I'm not an alcoholic. Then she says her story went from three to four a night to five drinks a night. But no, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm a happy drinker. I'm okay. But then she had a, an occasion where she nearly died from drinking too much alcohol. And that was a wake-up call for her. Something had to change. So she got the, the reality check. She needed to give up her drinking. She needed to give up alcohol. But then she looked around at all her friends who were doing the same thing as her, going, this is a big problem. Socially, we think alcohol is just something that we need to have. And she started this campaign, it's okay to say no, the sober in the country. But her life was radically changed as a response to a life-threatening event for her. It was really shaken up, which changed the direction of her life. Now, what would, that, what would have to happen for you to change your life or to live something for, with such passion, with such commitment, with such desire to, to share your story or to see other people changed for the better? What would have to happen for you? Because uh, there's lots of research to show people who live with lots of purpose and direction, it's usually because of something has happened in their life to convict them of that. It's not just, hey, I think it's a good idea. I want to try and become Australian of the Year. I'm going to try this. No, no. It's actually something personal has happened in her life or in maybe our life that drives us to live with passion and purpose. It's a response to something. So what would it take for us to have that experience? You know, when people look at us, what sort of reason do you live? What, what are you living for? What sort of purpose? What are you aiming for? What are you passionate about? And what has shaped that? See, the story we're looking at this morning is a story of a woman who lives with purpose and passion. Something has happened in her life to change her. And I think Luke's included in this story in the gospel for us all to read, to go, hey, is that you? Well, there's other people at the dinner table to ask the question, hey, is that you? What sort of person are we and how we live? There are some unexpected events that happen at these dinner parties. And if you notice in the Bible reading, we jump straight into one. There is a, a meal happening. It's at a Pharisee's house. A Pharisee is just a particular religious person. The setting is first century Roman Empire. Uh, it's around Jerusalem, so Judea, which is a very Jewish culture. The Pharisees, they're the religious people. This guy's name, we're going to find out later, is called Simon. He's invited Jesus to his house as a guest of honour, which is not unusual. There's somebody with prominence, and Jesus by this time was getting a lot of interest. People were very curious about him. Even Simon's curious about him, invited to him to his house. And in these meals, if you invite somebody of prominence to your house, uh, you might do it in secret behind closed doors. That ha did happen. But also... It's an open door policy. Anybody can come in and share this moment and talk to Jesus, get to know him, and you are the host. Simon is a host to people coming in. But the setting is they're sitting around a low table, which is you know, very common in that, that era, uh, that Middle Eastern, it's a low table with pillows around it, and you lie down at the table or recline at the table 
which just means when I think of reclining, I think in front of the TV on the lounge chair, leaning back. This is reclining quite different. You're actually lying on your side with your head towards the table so you can eat, they, so you can talk, it's very social, and everybody's feet is sort of pointing outside. So you need kind of a large room because everybody's reclining or lying on their side, just talking. It's a very casual affair that people can just sit around. This just sounds very relaxed setting. But then this woman comes in, into the house. Uh, it's like she heard about Jesus, heard that he was going to be there, and she's like, i got to be there. She's obviously heard something about Jesus, heard from Jesus, or seen the miracles, or something's impacted her. She says, I've got to be there. So she brings herself into the room. Now, we know a little bit about this woman, in that she's pointed out she's a local person, that everybody knew her. Uh, and she's labelled a sinner, uh, which in that culture, very religious culture, uh, we can easily call the Pharisees, they're the, the good guys or religious guys, if, if you're into that sort of thing. But this woman's a sinner. She's not religious. She doesn't belong at the temple. She even doesn't belong at the Pharisee's house. And that would be very awkward. She would feel very uncomfortable walking into the house of a Pharisee. And the Pharisee would even be more awkward. What the heck are you doing in my house? But as a sinner... We're not really told what kind of sinner she is. We heard last week, we met a guy called Levi. He was a tax collector, a sinner. Because if you're here last week, they were considered the scum of dishonest, they were traitors. Tax collectors sinners. She could be a wife of a tax collector, that she would be included in that, that she's a sinner as well. She could be a sex worker, a prostitute, commonly called sinners. We don't know. Some people want to guess that if you know the story of Mary Magdalene, that this could be her. We don't think so, because Luke will introduce her later on in the story, where this woman remains nameless. But all we do know, she knows Jesus. She's seen enough, heard enough, seen the miracles. She's convicted by him in a particular way, and she's deeply impacted that she will respond. So she walks into the house, and you can imagine everybody's eyes are on her, asking the question, what are you doing here? Here's this woman carrying an expensive jar of perfume in her hand. And she walks behind and stands behind Jesus' feet and starts to weep. Usually people don't just weep when they greet people. Yeah, I've seen uh, videos of when the Beatles were in Australia, the girls are going crazy crying. Justin Bieber, girls can go crazy crying. Jesus, I wouldn't necessarily put him in the rock star category like that, but this woman is still deeply impacted that she starts crying, standing behind Jesus at his feet. But then she does four things, and they're all to do with Jesus' feet. Because feet are a symbolic thing in a relationship in that first century Middle Eastern culture. That first century feet were considered the worst, most dirtiest, untouchable part of your body. And you can imagine in the day, there were a few horses, a few um, donkeys around, that most people walked on the roads around that time. The Roman Empire had good roads, uh, but they had no way of getting rid of the horse poo uh, off those roads. So most people, at, at best, had sandals, but a lot of people had no footwear at all. So you're walking on these dusty roads, and your feet get uh, sweaty and smelly, with a bit of poo thrown in there. They are dirty. I mean, we think, think of us. We wouldn't touch each other's feet, and we wear shoes and keep them clean, and, you know, we look after our feet compared to what they did. 
but they're foul, smelly, you don't touch them, they're the worst part of your body. So why the feet were important in the first century, it was actually a sign of respect, that if you were to come to my house, I would be a good host to welcome you with a kiss, was common in that culture, kiss on each cheek, I would uh, set a jar of water, a bowl of water, when you come into your house, like kicking off your shoes, because um, your shoes are dirty, it's like, no, you can wash your feet, or if I'm a good host, I would, or get my, my slave, my servant, to wash your feet for you. It's a sign of respect and honour, and I want to look after you and care for you. And in effect, uh, touching somebody's feet is kind of intimate. Now, don't get weird about the whole thing, but how many people have touched your feet? I was thinking about this. Very few people struggle to think of anyone outside, Kim, my wife, have touched my feet. Because it's kind of, I don't want you touching that. That's the worst part of my body. In the first century, it was even extremer than that. Touching feet and to clean somebody else's feet is a very humbling thing for the person to do, but also a humbling thing to be, to be done, that somebody would wash your feet. It's a sign of respect that you would do that. But th this woman... She comes to his feet, she's crying. And then she, with her tears, she wets Jesus' feet. Now the actual word there in the Greek, because it was written in Greek for this time, uh, nearly 2,000 years ago, is a word to describe rain, rain falling. Her tears actually rained on Jesus, not just dripped. She's raining tears on Jesus' feet. Then she doesn't pull out a towel and start wiping it like, uh, a lot of servants would do to wipe feet. No, she used her hair, which means she's getting her face down near his feet. And I don't know about you, how you would feel about putting somebody else's feet running through your hair. It's kind of like, why would you do that? I'd feel very uncomfortable either side. This is, this is uncomfortable because it's so intimate that she would do this. Then she kissed his feet. Now, Yes, it is common culture. To greet somebody, you kiss on the cheek, but she's kissing his feet, that foulest, dirtiest part of his body. You never kiss people's feet. But then she pours her expense, expensive perfume, which in that culture, if you wanted to show somebody honour and respect, uh, to anoint them is the word, you might pour some oil or something on somebody's head because that's a place of honour, is your head. But she gets her expensive perfume and anoints him on his feet, so she pours it out on him. Now, this is extremely unusual that somebody would do that in tears with high emotion, but high humility, high intimacy in that affectionate that she's going, she's pouring herself out, not to uh, the highest part of honour with Jesus being his head, but onto his feet. That she, that's where uh, she's expressing her uh, her affection. Now, we're not exactly told why she's doing it, that what she heard, what she's seen, why she's, she has this conviction, but she's obviously had some experience. But the obvious question, if we're sitting at the table, is what is this about? Why is this woman doing it? What's happened to her that she would uh, react this way? But there's others at the table, uh, the Pharisees, are going, hang on, this is Jesus meant to be the holy man and he's letting a sinner touch his feet 
and not just wash his feet, but she's going over the top with his, does, she, does Jesus really know who she is? So they're starting to question, is Jesus really the holy man we think he is or who he should be, that he would let a sinner touch him? Now, Jesus has to explain what's going on because Jesus knows what's going on. He didn't pull away. He just let her do this to his feet. So then he explains what just happens and he uses a parable explaining a principle of what just happened. And he talks about, so points out to Simon, uh, let me share with this with you and he tells a story with a teaching point to it. So uh, the scenario is two people owed money to a certain money lender, you know, like a bank manager, uh, owed, uh, lent out two guys' people. Uh, one owed him 500 denarii. That's in today's term about 150 grand. And the other guy, about 50, uh, uh, 50 denarii, which is about 15 grand. It's 150 grand versus 15 grand. Now, in those days, if you couldn't pay your debt, which these guys couldn't pay their debt, you could then legally count them as your slave or your servant. You owned them and you would work off your debt. So the guy who owned or owed 15 grand would have to work for him as his slave, do whatever he says. The guy owned him till he worked off his 15 grand. The other guy who owned 150 grand is going to be working so much more. It could be years to work off 150 grand. The debt is so big. But instead of the, the creditor saying, hey, you know, you need to be my slave, he goes, you know what, I'm just going to forgive your debts. You know, what you owed me, you don't have to work it off being my slave. In fact, I'm going to cancel your debt completely. You can walk away without a debt at all. So the question is, who would love the creditor more? Simon goes, well, of course, the guy who has the biggest debt. Now, I think a helpful uh, way of getting our heads into appreciating this story, I come up with a bit of a diagram that I hope it's helpful, that there's this spectrum of the size of the debt. At one end, there's this idea of the very small debt, or relatively small debt. The other side, the guy's got a big debt. Now, that, that's a burden on you, because you know if things go bad, you're going to have to be the slave to work it off. But then the bank manager guy comes along and says, hey, your debt is now wiped. So one guy, small debt. Another guy, small debt. Another guy, big debt. The bank manager, hey, I'm going to forgive your debts. You don't have to owe anything. So on the one hand, it's a small forgiveness. But for the other guy, it's a big forgiveness. And what are the responses going to be? Well, on the one hand, you're happy, right, if you get your small debt cancelled. But on the other hand, if it's a big debt, big forgiveness, a big reaction, a big response. Man, I love my bank manager to do that. Now, in my experience, I've, I've experienced this a few times, and, and one of the obvious ones is in our journey as a church here, when we were going through this building project, we got lots of stories in our committee management and our building team that was looking after putting this building together. It was uh, a big project, big funds, big money that we were talking about. And every now and again, we'd get the message through that somebody had donated some money or uh, uh, one of the product providers, uh, suppliers, would donate his stuff or give us a super discount. And that would be shared amongst our community management. We'd go, oh, that's awesome. How good is that, that people have captured the vision and we're thankful for them? But it got like one minute airtime in a meeting. 
But there was one meeting where, you know, I, two hours before the meeting, I got some correspondence uh, about a debt that was cleared or, or was refunded. And I'd set up uh, community, ma I knew our community management would be happy, so I bought a bottle of champagne, I think it was the cheapest $6 champagne, sat it on the table, and our committee management walks in because they manage all our funds and stuff, and they go, what's the champagne about? I said, oh, well, I've got some news. The, um, just got word from the stamp duty people. So when you buy a building, you pay stamp duty, and this building was a lot of stamp duty. Uh, normally, uh, religious organisations get some of that back, but because our building was complicated, we had to pay it and then ask for it back. Hadn't heard for close to two years what was going on with this. And we got refunded, we were notified, we got refunded 316 grand back that we'd paid as pretty much, here's a gift back into your bank account, 316 grand. Do you, which, which side do you think we were on? Can I tell you, I've never seen James Harder dance before that time. James was dancing in the room and we hadn't even opened the champagne at that stage. Like everybody was like, this is amazing. We've never met the people in the stamp duty tax office before, but we love them. We're so thankful for them. We prayed for them in a, in a th prayer of thanks for that. It was joyous time. Three, over 300 grand. It was a big moment. Do we sell, what's the response from that? Being forgiven much or forgiven little? We're forgiven much. And we benefited from that. And we're so delighted. It changed us, changed our attitude. I can imagine here in this room, if we had, if we all used the same bank and the bank manager coming up the front, he says, I want to announce to you for different reasons, we're going to forgive everybody's mortgages. If you've got a mortgage here, no more mortgage. You're debt free. I mean, how would we respond in here? I could imagine, <laughs> that's right. we could do this. If you're not excited there and excited there, we could do this scale. Because I could imagine, if you've just bought a house, and you're usually mortgaged up to the eyeballs because you need every cent to buy a house. You're super excited because you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. For those people who have been paying off their house years and years and years, their, their debt, their mortgage is still substantial, but it's not as substantial as that. It's like they're more in the middle just going, yeah, look, this is really good, I'm really excited. Thank you, bank manager. And the people in the room here say, I haven't even got a mortgage, I'm renting, I've got nothing. So they're going, sounds like a nice bloke, but it means nothing to me. So after the service, the, the guys that have got the big mortgages had come up and go, thank you, like big debt, big forgiveness, big response. You'd have to give your bank manager a kiss on the cheek, wouldn't you? Just thank you. But then if you've got no mortgage, or almost got it finished, you go, good on your buddy, thanks. Um, it's how big your debt, to how much you're forgiven, to how you respond to that is a pretty typical way of doing it. But Jesus is not talking about money. Money is helpful to use as an illustration because we all understand and appreciate the value of money. But what if Jesus was talking about something like sin? Because sin is the debt we owe God. Sin is the things we do against God that offend him. And when we offend people, to recover, from, to restore that friendship, there's some sort of forgiveness involved. Somebody's got to pay the price, whether it's being humble or humbled, uh, swallowed your pride to actually offer forgiveness. 
So if we've done things to offend God, which we all have, whether we've done things out and out that he said not to do or we haven't done things that he said we should do, we've all lived lives that offended God. There's a debt for that. There's a debt involved. Now, what does it look like? What does it look like to respond to that debt? Jesus goes on to explain what this looks like for Simon the Pharisee and the woman. And it's very pointed in what he says. Kind of reverse engineers it. He doesn't talk about, hey, you know, I saw you do this, this sin. He actually talks about, he reverse engineers it. I'm seeing this in your response. So through your response, I'm reading this into your life. He says uh, to Simon, I come into your house. And he's very pointed at Simon. Simon is the host. Simon should be treating Jesus as his guest of honour. Simon should be offering Jesus everything as a good host. He says, I come to your house. You did not give me water for my feet, which is customary. But he didn't even do that. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. This contrast. You did not give me a kiss, which is customary. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. What does he mean by comparing and contrasting their actions? Well, he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, her many sins, have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. See, your response shows how much you think your debt is, how much you think you've been forgiven, to how much you think you should respond. She has seen something and responded enormously. She swallowed her pride. She's got no dignity left when you uh, cry at somebody's feet, you wipe their feet with your hair. You, you've, it's not about you anymore, but it's all about them kissing their feet, by pouring all the expensive perfume. It's all about them, not her. And she gets it. She had a large response because everybody knows through her public sin, whatever she was doing, that she had large sin, large debt, but also large forgiveness. For Simon, through his response, you can see he didn't think he needed a lot of forgiveness. He didn't think he had a lot of debt that he was okay. She has faith that Jesus says can give her forgiveness. Now, we just need to point out, it's not because she did these things, Jesus says, oh, because you cleaned my feet, I'm going to forgive you your sins. It's not a works type thing. But she's doing that out of response. She had faith. She couldn't get herself right with God, but she knew that Jesus was the only one that could. This has radically changed her life, not only to do what she did, with great humility in doing that, to fall at his feet. He says to her, go in peace. This is like now, live a life of response. She had a moment of response, like a moment of repentance, a moment of repentance. Go in peace, live a life of response. Often Jesus will tell people, uh, to don't go on sinning as you go. This is a life-changing thing. 
She gets it. Her life is changed forever. But the guests, the Pharisees, the religious people, they're, they're still grumbling. Like, you know, looking for other things. Why? How does he think he can forgive sins? They don't think they need him. They're actually disowning him. They don't need him at all. They're the religious people. They've got a small sin to deal with that they think they can deal with. Now, dinner finishes. Now, we're kind of left hanging a little bit here because people have more questions for Jesus, but actually by the dinner hanging on that moment, there's actually a lot of questions Jesus has for us or it's implied onto us. And ask the question about what is happening for you. So we have this unexpected dinner, what just happened at this dinner, what just happened in their heart and their relationship with God and relationship with Jesus. But what's happening with us in the way we live, the way we respond to Jesus? See, just as Jesus pointed out those people's response to him, how would your life be described? You know, if Jesus walked in here and says, you know, you're a Simon, you didn't welcome me, you didn't greet me, you didn't appreciate I'm just your little thing on the side. Or responding, hey, Jesus is significant, if not the most significant thing in my life, the most significant thing that's ever happened to me, and I live my life for him. Is that how we live? Is that how we live? Does your life reflect your appreciation, your response to what Jesus has done, your response because of your great sin, your response to your great forgiveness that Jesus has given us? If we go back to the diagram, I find this really helpful to go, our response is very hard to separate. I think it's what Jesus is saying. It's very hard to separate from how you understand the size of your sin. Are you at the end where you go, actually, I'm a pretty good person. I don't have a real issue with sin and therefore I don't really need to respond that way to God because I haven't really been, I don't really need forgiveness. Or is it on the other side, actually, I need to respond because Jesus has dealt with my big debt. He's forgiven it and I need to respond in a major way. Uh, a deeper question of this, or a deeper, or a real living illustration of this, was an older lady I was talking to me. This is going back several years ago. Uh, there was a lovely old lady, Anne Wotherspoon, in our congregation. She's now passed away. But when she was elderly, she shared this story about this idea. And she said, you know, when I was younger, so she was a committed Christian in her, in her dying years, you might say. But she's reflecting, she says, when I was younger, you might say, I, I sinned a lot. I didn't take God seriously. Actually, I wasn't a Christian. In fact, if you wrote down on a pad my sin, the pad would be full. I sinned a lot. But actually, in reality, I thought I was still a good person. So being a good person, I was at this end with the small sin problem. And with a small sin problem, I don't really need a saviour. I don't really need forgiveness. I don't really need Jesus. I don't really need a very big cross. You know, the whole Christian thing was just parked on the side. But she says, now I'm older, I see. I see that my, the size of my sin is so big that my sin grieves God, my Father God, so much. My sin is a problem. It's big. She says, the funny thing is, if you write my sin on a pad, the list would be shorter in my older age 
I think I've cleaned up a bit. I'm trying. I'm working hard. She's not claiming to be perfect. But she says, now I can see my sin clearly. The grief that it caused in my relationship with God. I have a sin problem. A big sin problem. Even though everybody else can think that I'm a good, righteous person. But when I have a big sin problem, she says, I realise I need a big saviour because I need a big forgiveness. I need a big Jesus and I need a big cross. And that's what the Bible tells me that Jesus has done. See, if I've got a small sin problem, if I think my sin is no big deal, I've got it under control. I actually don't need Jesus. I don't, have, I don't need a big cross moment where Jesus died on the cross for me. I'm satisfied to park that on the side. But I need a big cross when I know my sin is a real problem. And when we look at what Jesus has done and the emphasis in Scripture on what's going on when Jesus went to the cross, if, if God didn't think was, sin was much of a problem, why would he send his son Jesus to give up his life on the cross? Why would Jesus willingly say, hey, this must happen, I must go and die, I must be buried for three days and rise again. This must happen to restore people back to God. It come at great cost for Jesus to give up his life, dying in agony for the sins of the world. For my sin, Jesus gave up his life. If my sin wasn't such a big deal, Jesus would go, ah, oh, you'll be right, Ross, do some penance, do something nice, you know, karma, balance it out, you're a good bloke. But no, sin is a big problem. No matter what your life looks like, the thing with the, the sinner, the woman, is that it was a very public sin. Everybody knew what she was up to. The Pharisee, Simon, he's just as big a sinner, but he's just better at hiding it. He's just, yeah, covered it up with all these good works. But we need to address the big sin problem, and God does that for us through a big cross where the Saviour, Jesus, the Lord, goes and dies so we could have forgiveness, to get that forgiveness that debt paid for. And this gospel, this is the gospel, the good news. Because what this means is the sinner, somebody who's convicted and guilty, doesn't have to walk around with her head down full of shame. She can go away from that meal with her head held high, going, I am forgiven. I'm at one with God. God accepts me. He loves me. And that God would send his son Jesus to die for me. And this gospel has power to change people and i've seen it i met this guy called mez mcconnell he's now church planting he started church planting movement uh, over in scotland and he didn't wake up one morning as a kid going hey i want to be a famous preacher i want to be head of a church planting movement he he was born into a very abusive family that saw the church as being very abusive as well he grew up with violence and drugs and robbing people. Like, that's what he knew. But then met some Christians. He was in jail. Uh, God spoke to him in that moment of just going, hey, you're actually living your life a mess. I've got something better for you. And once he believed, once he realised there is a God with so much grace and he'd never experienced grace before in his life, he became become a pastor. <laughs> this is the short story. he became become a pastor and now completely transformed because he's experienced grace himself firsthand. I know for myself, I grew up as the Pharisee. I grew up as the Simon. I don't really have a sin problem. 
I don't need Jesus. I don't need the cross. I'm doing pretty good by myself. God must love me for who I am because I'm, I'm one of the good guys. But actually, it needed to be turned around. It's not until I saw my sin that I needed to change. But I think we can all identify with the woman or Simon the Pharisee. Actually, now I think I'm a bit of both. Sometimes I get very comfortable in my lifestyle and my sin and I actually don't appreciate the grief that it costs God and I slide into that I can't get, take my eyes off the cross take my eyes off Jesus because I'm very comfortable but then when I have those moments of realization go oh this is terrible it's what I'm doing to God I need to cling to the cross I need to fall at the feet of the cross I need to be weeping at the feet of the cross because God's love poured out for me there I'm not sure if you connect with any of those stories but the idea is you've got to respond to Jesus somehow and what he's done how big is your Jesus how big is your cross maybe start looking at how big is your sin and that way you might see hey he deserves to be the focus of my life that I can't treat him as something on the side that I actually need to be like the woman Go, man, I can't do this. I need you to give up her uh, pride, in a sense, to give up her dignity, to go, I need you. You're the only one who can save me, my saviour. To give up her expensive perfume, to anoint Jesus. How can we anoint Jesus out of our own lives to say, you are the king of my life, my saviour? It's very hard at the moment. Being a Christian is not popular. To say you follow Jesus often means you're uh, discriminating against the world, that you're actually taking a position of supremacy. But actually what you find is, when you dig deeper, the gospel is the opposite to that. It's actually swallow your pride, you've got nothing to bring to the table, but you need a big saviour, and we have that in Jesus. So we can walk out of here knowing that we are forgiven. Not because we've got it together, not because we're perfect, but because we've got a big Lord and saviour. I'm going to pray a prayer now and I invite you to pray it with me. That God might help convict us and help us see our sin clearly. But also convict us, how are we responding to that forgiveness that he's offering? That if we come to him and ask him for forgiveness, that he might work in our lives to live with purpose and conviction, to honour him in all that we do. Please, I invite you to pray with me now. Father God, I just thank you for your great love for us. That in this story, uh, even a woman, a sinner, a publicly known sinner, that you would love and accept and offer forgiveness. Lord, we're going to say that we're sorry. We're sorry for taking you for granted so often. There are moments where we just don't appreciate our sin. We're very comfortable in our sin. There are moments where we take our eyes off the cross and Jesus, our Saviour, that we take you for granted. Lord, we're just sorry for that. But we just thank you for the forgiveness that you offer covers all our sin, no matter whether we're the public sinner, the private sinner, that you cover all our sin out of your love for us that Jesus went and died for us in our place 
Lord, help us to respond appropriately. Lord, help us to, to live a life, true life that you give, now that we're free from sin, that we can live to honour you, that we can publicly share our, our exalting of you, that we lift you up, that we make you the centre of our lives, that you give us purpose, you give us passion to see others know you too. Lord, thanks for being a loving God. We pray that you would use us, convict us, fill us with your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.